Welcome to Off Leash Arts Conversations on Creativity. I'm your host, Tanya Schaefer. My guest today is author, columnist, and political commentator Steve Phillips. Steve is the author of the new book, How We Win the Civil War, Securing a Multiracial Democracy and Ending White Supremacy for Good. He's also the author of the New York Times bestselling book, Brown is the New White, How the Demographic Revolution Has Created a New American Majority. Steve is a columnist for The Guardian and The Nation and an opinion contributor to The New York Times. He's also the founder of the political media organization Democracy in Color and host of the podcast Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips, a color-conscious podcast on politics. In 1992, Steve became the youngest person ever elected to public office in San Francisco when he won a seat on the San Francisco Board of Education. He went on to serve as its president. He's a graduate of Stanford University and Hastings College of Law and practiced civil rights and employment law for many years. He has appeared on multiple national radio and television networks, including NBC, CNN, MSNBC, and C-SPAN. He's also an old and dear friend of mine. Steve Phillips, welcome to Awfully Sharts. Thank you for having me. This has been, what, uh, 20, 30 years in the making in terms of us actually having this type of a recorded conversation together? I know. It's pretty amazing. Yeah. God, it must be close to 30 years. Wow. It's got to be close to 30. It was 20. <laughs> it was two, year 2000. So oh, yeah. Okay. We don't even want to get into how old we are. So you are the first nonfiction author I've had on this show. But reading your new book, How We Win the Civil War, I was thinking, this is high dramatic storytelling. There's a story at the center of this that really is high stakes, good and evil and life and death. And conveying that in a powerful way is art. So I'm really happy to have you on here. I work with a lot of people who are writing memoir and writing nonfiction. I am a very plot and character-driven reader. I mean, honestly, I often don't make it all the way through a nonfiction book, but I read yours cover to cover. Oh, wow. Were you thinking you were approaching it as telling a story when you were writing it? It's interesting you say that. I was mindful of including stories. As you well know, my wife, Susan Sandler, and Susan is a voracious reader. And so she has long impressed upon me the importance of stories and stories making writing being more accessible and understandable. So I was very, very conscious of trying to find stories, examples of stories, mm-hmm. including the one about you that I forgot that I had actually <laughs> put in there. I know. Um, I was like, hey, I'm in the book. <laughs> I think I somewhat backed into the thing about a story. It's a, I don't know if distillation is quite the right word or, or culmination maybe of my life's work. And so I was an African-American studies major in college. I read and studied a lot about politics and social change and how different countries changed and the civil rights movement. Interacted with a lot of these different people over the year. I remember I flew to, when I was in college, Chicago, to interview Bobby Rush, who was one of the members of the Black Panther Party and went on to serve in Congress. I did a whole paper on the Black Panthers when I was in college. So I have all that in me. And then then I'm realizing I feel a deep sense of purpose in my own life about carrying on the work of the civil rights movement, of those who've been fighting for justice and equality. And so I felt a very strong sense of obligation to be able to 
carry that forward and have this book be a continuation and extension of that. So I think in that regard, there was a thematic through line in me that as I wrote it, hopefully ultimately came into sharper focus. Mm-hmm. Before we get deep into what is actually in this book, I wanted to give our listeners a little background about your first book, Brown is the New White. Can you tell us what you mean by the new American majority? So Brown is the New White, we wrote in 2014, 2015, published in 2016. Both of them are connected to I was having a discussion with one of the, the researchers for our book, Caitlin Damasian, and she says, your two favorite phrases are folks and Jesse Jackson. Jesse's experience was quite seminal in my life in terms of tangibly connecting me to the civil rights movement, in terms of a formative experience, but also in terms of language and religious metaphor. I say all that to say is that politics was very clear to me that Obama's election was the extension of the work that Jesse had done. So I feel like Jesse took the work of the civil rights movement and Moving into the electoral sphere, Dr. King said, give us the ballot, we will transform the South. And then Jesse used that work to build the Rainbow Coalition, and then Obama built upon that and won election. So it was very clear to me that this was a logical extension. The old minorities coming together comprise a new majority. But then I got alarmed when people didn't really understand and didn't see that. They were like, oh, well, it's Obama's unique gifts, and it's a once-in-a-lifetime thing, so we have to go back to chasing the white swing voters. And so that's why I wrote Brown is the New White, was to try to document and clarify that there is, in fact, a new American majority within this country, which was crystallized through the Obama campaigns and quantified through the Obama campaigns. 75 to 80 percent of people of color and 38 to 42 percent of whites. Together, that's the majority of people in the country and that's the majority of voters. And that's who elected Obama and who reelected Obama. And it's a growing majority. Because of uh, centuries of literally racially exclusionary immigration laws, the country was overwhelmingly white as of the 50s and then even to the, the 60s. And so most old people are white. And so if you take births, deaths, and legal immigration, every single day, 7,000 people of color are added to the population as compared to 1,000 whites. So the trend is very clear. So that's what I was trying to lay out in Brown is the New Way. So look at the Obama coalition, dissect it, and then dive deep into uh, more illuminating telling stories around the various communities. So find an individual who represented that community, my friend Julie Martinez Ortega, talking about her experiences growing up as a Mexican-American in San Antonio, my own experience as an African-American, my grandparents coming up from Alabama and Mississippi, to illuminate who comprises the new American majority. So it's, it's African-Americans, Latinos, Asian-Americans, and progressive whites, I mean, Native Americans, if I didn't say that, as the core, and then the arching piece really is all non-whites, which then kind of feeds into the the next book where I more distill that we are still engaged in this fight around whiteness versus multiracial democracy. Mm. Yeah, the first book sort of lays the groundwork for this one in that way. It's like, okay, we are the majority. How do we galvanize that majority to actually win? Exactly. So tell us about the genesis of this new book. I understand it involves a fateful phone call or email from the publisher. <laughs> oh, right, right, right. So the New Press published the first book. So that was a great relationship. They're a nonprofit, do a lot of progressive books. And so they did uh, Michelle Alexander's New Jim Crow, kind of most, you know, seminally took that to make it a major voice and force within the whole criminal justice reform movement. So they published the first book. 
And that went very well for all of us, I think. And then they emailed me in April of 2020 and said, should we talk about your next book? And so that's really what catalyzed the thought process and the conversation. And I was thinking about it. I did a Zoom call with my friend Deepak Bhargava. He used to run the Center for Community Change, and now he's at CUNY as a professor there. And we were exploring the concepts and the ideas. I remember tentatively saying to him, and I'm kind of thinking about talking about the Civil War as like a metaphor and whatnot. So he was very encouraging of that. And so that's kind of what moved it forward. But the idea was the Civil War is a metaphor of what's happening in this country right now. We're still engaged in the Civil War. And then months after that, people carrying the Confederate flag, wearing sweatshirts, saying MAGA Civil War, January 6, 2021, stormed the United States Capitol, literally hunted down the country's elected officials, built a gallows for the vice president, and tried to block the peaceful transfer of power. And I was like, well, this, this is not so metaphorical anymore. And so that's kind of how the title came to be and how the framing of it came. And then as I was doing the research, I really began to understand much more deeply than I even did at the beginning how much the Confederates have, in fact, never stopped fighting the Civil War. Wow. Yeah, I wondered about that. There was so much evidence that you brought into this of the ongoing civil war. So much, you know, and I think of myself as someone who knew something about civil rights history. My dad was active in civil rights, but my mind was boggled by the extent, like the thing about the Southern Catechism teaching an alternate history to kids. Did you know all this when you went into this or were you just also kind of mind-boggled uncovering it all. Yeah, no, I didn't know a lot of it. Two, you know, major, major examples of it are, for one, the Civil War itself. The Civil War began when the we had a presidential election. The candidate who was backed by Black people won, and the losing side refused to accept the results of the election. And I'm like, well, that's pretty relevant to what's actually going on in the country right now. It was like weeks after the election that South Carolina succeeded from the Union. And that was the basis for the Civil War. And then it was you know, a couple months after that, the other six initial states succeeded in this, this, this line and Gone with the Wind. Margaret Mitchell was very much a Confederate and influenced by, you know, really the white supremacist Confederates. She, she has this line in Gone with the Wind about Georgia didn't succeed until January, which was good because then it didn't interfere with the Christmas holidays. And so (laughs) this is an actual line in Gone with the Wind. Yeah. So, but I didn't appreciate the origins of the Civil War until I really began to, you know, dig into it. So that was one thing. And then the other thing, it's such a huge part of our our reality and our history that we don't appreciate. And I didn't know about how I started researching. Because obviously everybody knows Lincoln was assassinated. But when and why, that is something I did not really appreciate to the point that it was five days after the supposed surrender in the Civil War at Appomattox. That and John Wilkes Booth explicitly said, after hearing Lincoln give a speech after that uh, surrender, that means N-word citizenship. That's the last speech he'll ever give. And then he went to Ford's Theater and shot Lincoln in the back of the head. And so that's not surrendering in terms of continuing to actually fight. So you take that as like a very dominant example, something I didn't understand that's really you know key. And then what I knew about was the destruction and abandonment of Reconstruction after 10 
meaningful but short years of the time from now to when Obama's elected is longer than the time we attempted reconstruction within this country. It's for a you know, parameters. So I knew that it happened. But when I began to think about it and write about it, I was like, no, we gave the South back to the slave owners and allowed them to rule unapologetically with explicit white nationalist, white supremacist governing framework for a hundred years. And so people think, oh, well, slavery is a long time ago. Civil war is a long time ago. No, they killed the president who freed the slaves. And then they took back the South and they ruled it for 100 years. If we're going to talk about a long time ago, we got to start about 1964 and 65. And so that when the Civil Rights and Voting Rights Acts were passed. So, so to your question around what the research educating me is, those are just two of the most prominent examples. But there's a lot of other things that are like that that I did not understand at all. They had a major, huge-ass statue to Robert E. Lee. It was like three stories high or something, the Confederate general in Richmond went up shortly after the Civil War, sometime in the late 1800s. They blocked the creation of the Lincoln Memorial for decades. We didn't get the Lincoln Memorial until the 1920s or 30s. And so it's things like that that I did not have much awareness of until really digging into the research for the book. Yeah. Wow. Well, I wanted to ask you to read a passage from the introduction that talks a bit more about how the Confederate side has been playing this strategic long game. Would you read that, please? Contrary to the more comforting notion that racism and white supremacy are the result of ignorance and inadequate education, the post-Civil War fight has been defined by great sophistication and shrewdness in devising and following strategies that have long-term multi-generational impact. The Civil War may have technically ended, but the fighting never stopped. Over the ensuing decades, those who believe that America is first and foremost a white nation ferociously fought on, taking their fight to every aspect of society, and they did so by following a battle plan, a Confederate battle plan, that continues to dominate our politics in the third decade of the 21st century. Yeah, wow. One of the things that I mentioned earlier that really did blow my mind was this idea of a Southern catechism, of this sort of false history of the Civil War that is perhaps still being taught to some children where they're being told that they were not, well, how did you put it? They right, were so like, that, that's yeah. something I did not know a lot about, and I still want to figure out how do we inject it much more into the popular awareness and conversation going forward. I do want to inject this into the public discussion in Virginia. One of the big political fights in 2023 is going to be the progressives trying to take back control of Virginia state legislature in 2023. So that's an off year. That's going to be a major focus. So Virginia is the, it was the literal capital of the Confederacy. And there's an organization called United Daughters of the Confederacy. When I, you know, talk about the Confederates never stop fighting, I reference the ideological heirs never stop fighting, but also in many cases the genealogical heirs. So these are actual United Daughters of the Confederacy. And there's a parallel organization called Sons of Confederate Veterans. And there are like 700 chapters of these organizations all over the country. For UDC, United Daughters of the Confederacy, most prominently in Virginia. And so they played a significant role, a very active role, around the early 20th century iteration of attacking critical race theory. 
and they very much monitored what was being taught in schools, what was being taught about the Confederacy, and they really tried to ban books that were critical at all of the Confederacy. And again, what you appreciate versus when you start to really think about it and write about it, the movie Gone with the Wind is a whitewashing of history and a whitewashing of the Civil War itself. And it's still the movie in the book. There was a 2018 poll in USA Today, and it's like the fourth most popular book in the country today, more popular than Chronicles of Narnia. It is basically glorification of the people who were, in fact, white nationalist mass murderers, turning them into, you know, romantic leading men and dashing leading women and whatnot. So in terms of it's continuing to go on, yes, very much so. So then what United Dollars Confederacy has done, they've created a wing of their works called Children of the Confederacy. And they have, it's like a, almost like a Bible school type of a thing. And so they have young people, they come regularly to give out scholarships to young people. And they have had this catechism that they have the students recite, almost like literally drilling into them this propaganda. And it's this kind of call and response type thing. And and so you ask these questions and the catechism, and then there are these correct answers. At one point in the mid-20th century, one of the questions they would ask students was, did we kill many Yankees? And the correct answer was, yes, thousands and thousands. And so they were telling children to celebrate, glorify the murder of people who didn't want people to be held in slavery. And then they somewhat tightened it up, but it still is a, a defense of slavery in the current catechisms. I was able to contact this woman who wrote her dissertation on the United States of the Confederacy, 300-page dissertation. And so I contacted her, and I'm looking at her footnotes, and I'm like, can you send me this catechism that you reference in footnote 49 or whatever, and what page? And she did. And, and if you go to the United States Confederacy's uh, website today, the catechism is still there. And so they ask about slavery. The slaves were treated well. It wasn't about racism. It was about the right to control our own lives, etc. And so this brainwashing continues to this day by this organization that has 700 plus chapters across the country, not even just in Virginia, and gets U.S. tax benefits, by the way. This whole attacking critical race theory is part of a long tradition around really trying to rewrite history and um, whitewash the worst parts of our of our country's trajectory. Wow. Pretty amazing. I mean, I think the way I saw the story that you were telling in the first half of the book in part one was basically drawing a straight line from the Civil War to Donald Trump. And you had these five components that kept cycling back through, never give an inch, ruthlessly rewrite the laws, distort public opinion, silently sanction terrorism, and play the long game. And I thought that was structurally interesting. Example after example, cumulatively showing how these same five principles were at work. Did you come in with that list in mind, or was that something that evolved as you were looking at these examples? It evolved as we were looking at the examples there's like two parts to like even the, the more fundamental motivation. The second part of the book, somebody was like, what are you most excited about? And I was like, well, all of my life, people have always patronized people of color politically. It's like, well, you know, yes, people of color stuff is important, but we need to win. So we have that has to take a back seat. And I was like, oh, no, wait, we're winning. We have won. We won in Georgia. We won in Arizona. We won in Virginia. And so that's the second half of the book. The first half is similarly motivated by the experiences 
throughout my life. And Susan, you know, I talked about how it's very intense, but I feel like there's so much rationalization, minimization, marginalization of the actual history. It's like, yeah, yeah, but it's not really that, you know, that's a long time ago or that's such and such. And so I really wanted to make it inescapable and unavoidable. And that was the thing about really trying to overwhelm people with examples and evidence. So you can't just say, yeah, yeah, but. But it's like, no, here after thing after thing. But it was through the research. It was like certain point too much. I remember I went, I did some storyboarding. You know, I wrote out on index cards and tried to lay it out to kind of get it organized in my head around how to actually communicate to people. So it was through the process of seeing the examples, looking at the research and stepping back, trying to think about well, how to communicate this most effectively to people that we got to the Confederate battle plan piece. And then I had a whole thing about the 20th century. And it was like too long a chapter. <laughs> I was like, what was I going to do about that? And I'm like, I'll break it up into two. It'll be first half and then second half. So we had some of those creative decisions. Yeah. Now you're saying we, you did Charlene Chang, your your co-host on your podcast. She collaborated with you on the research aspect of the book? Yeah. So Charlene Chang has been my book coach and editor through both books. And so I met her in 2014 when I was starting on the Brown Student White journey, I was looking for somebody to help me um, as a as like an editor. Naive as I was, I was like, "Well, I know this stuff. I'm just going to write it down, and it'll take a few months, and then I'll I'm going to get it out and published." So, a year and a half later for that book, but and then she has an extraordinary, extraordinarily gifted writer, understand her words and communicator, and she's extraordinarily obsessively detail oriented. I didn't even know this. Microsoft Word and their editing function it quantifies the number of changes and edits and insertions. And so like one chapter, there was literally 300 different changes that Charlene had actually put in. So she tightened up a lot of it. And she pushed me to the thinking and the clarity of it. And so there was a very much of a back and forth partnership piece. The second half, we talked about liberation battle plan. It was her ideas that well, we need to come up with you know, a branding for that piece. And so that's kind of what got me to think about liberation battle plan. So yeah, Charlene's very much been my co-pilot on both of these books. Mm, that's great. And do you do like tons and tons of research before you start the writing or are you kind of like writing and then filling in the pieces as you go along? It's writing and, and filling in. And I'm, I'm too, I don't know, impatient is the right word, but also over confident about what I know. And so it's kind of like, well, we're going to do this. And then I have to step back and pause and think about it, get my arms around it all. I don't know. On one hand, I want to say in, in one level, it could be, you could take a number of years to try to do all of the research and all of the analysis, but we were continually scrambling. And um, a number of people helped, but we, we were very fortunate to find this woman, Caitlin Damasian, who became one of the core researchers or the main researcher for the book. So it was very much like iterative and in process and organic. So I'd be writing something and then I'd be like, can you go figure out this thing? Or like try to tie it back in the second part. I talk about the in Tennessee, there's this guy who was you know, could have used healthcare and refused to get it because it had the name of a black president on it and said, I would rather die and did die. So then what happened in the Civil War in Tennessee? Can I tie that back? And so then I would have Caitlin research and then there's like the Battle of Franklin. And so she would go kind of get that piece. So it was that kind of a real time researching process is a lot of how that unfolded. 
Well, that's interesting. So you're definitely not one of those writers who uses doing research as a means of procrastinating. <laughs> well, there is. I have this obsession, apparently, with the 19th century. So I find it also fascinating. And so I remember, like, when I was writing Browns and New White, like, every day I come home and tell Susan, oh, and there was this another thing that happened, et cetera. And at one point, Susan was like, you got to get out of the 19th century, Steve. Right? <laughs> so I definitely did not always make the best use of my time in that regard. Do you have a writing routine? Like, do you sit down at a certain time each day? Yeah, well, I should be curious about your your routine as well. And so it's funny. I never thought I was a morning person. I always thought I was an evening person. Used to do writing like stuff back in the in at nighttime, put on jazz and whatever. And, but I discovered writing Brown's the New White that my highest creative energy is like two to two and a half hours between 6.30 and 8.30 or 9 in the morning. And I did not know this about myself. And I also realized it's a diminishing resource. And so I can't really go much past two and a half hours at a time. And so for the first book I wrote, I would go down to Phil's Coffee and I'd be like, I got to get down there because the clock is ticking. So I tried to replicate that insight for this book. And so this was written, you know, during the COVID pandemic. And so I would order Phil's coffee in terms of having it sent to the house. And then I would go up to my attic and try to have that carved out as my writing space. But on the regular, I would try to get up around 6.30, 6.35, get upstairs. I read some article early in the pandemic. Someone was saying they would, they made a point to get up, get dressed. They would take a walk around the block as like a fake commute. And I was all like, oh, that's an interesting. <laughs> so I would made a point to get dressed and to go upstairs to my attic as like a fake going to work type thing. Mm-hmm. And then I would write up there for two and a half to three hours uh, at a time. That's really interesting. That echoes what an early writing teacher of mine, Jonathan Lethem, amazing novelist, he used to work at Moe's Books in Berkeley and he would oh. get up two hours early. He'd get up like at five and he always mm. told us, steal the best hours of your day from your mm. employer. The first thing in the morning are the best hours of your day. I have yet to evolve to that point where I <laughs> use that. When do you write? <laughs> I do the bulk of big projects in sort of bursts. This is what mm-hmm. I've I've discovered works for me at this moment in my life. Because mm-hmm. in my regular life with teaching and parenting, I don't have big stretches, so I can't seem to generate a lot. I can mm-hmm. do editing. So I go away for like a retreat four or five times a year for four or five days. And I kind of like get up and write around the clock, breaking it up with walks. I realize mm. this is really unusual, mm-hmm. <laughs> but that's how I generate a first draft. It seems to be the only way I can generate a first mm-hmm. draft. When I have like, I know some things coming in two hours, I can't seem to get a lot done. Yeah. I find it's it's very individual, which is what and I think people need to really understand themselves, right? About what works. I have another friend I've gotten to know. I'm Jennifer Posner, just a writer in New York. And so I'm very much into this, um, what is it, Annie Lamont, shitty first draft thing. It's like I'm paranoid about a blank page. Like this is about writing the book. They are all like 80,000 words. I think the Browns and White was like 68,000. It's like, can I get 80,000 words? So it's like if you get something written, then it kind of relieves the fear a little bit. I ended up at 117,000 words, so apparently I was able to get through that all. But, but I think it's that. But so Jennifer can't do. She can't do that. She first draft. She kind of edits as she goes. I just think it's an individual thing. But you have to be self-aware around what actually works for you. But I think about stealing the best hours. But when are those best hours for you? Yeah. I'm with you on the shitty first draft. Somebody said you can fix anything but a blank page. And I always mm. hope that that like, get something down there. Yeah. 
But circling back to your work, to the how we win the Civil War, after you've persuaded us in part one, basically, that this war is still going on, then we have part two, how we win, where we have the liberation battle plan. And in part two, we get a lot of stories of organizations and individuals around the country who are making really meaningful systemic change. Can you talk a little about what these groups are doing to change the landscape and where you've seen them having really significant success? So, yeah, a lot of ways that was the driving motivation for writing the book was because we have had these significant wins and this significant progress and they was underappreciated and being ignored to our detriment and our peril. And then ironically, actually, I need to write about this. I thought about this to this moment. Even these past midterm elections that people were surprised at how well the Democrats did, I feel fundamentally affirmed by the analysis we lay out in um, how we win the Civil War has been proven out. But the understanding of how these places have succeeded is not conventional wisdom. And then the people doing the best work are so busy doing the work that they're not able to tell the stories of how they've done it. So it doesn't affect the national narrative and the strategy and the priorities. So the five case studies are Arizona, Georgia, Virginia, uh, Harris County, Texas, and San Diego, California. And so those are all areas that were, most of them formerly slaveholding places, that were then very much um, Republican, right-wing strongholds, and then have had significant progressive multiracial change over the course of the past decade. So I knew, I know all of the people in those places, so I was familiar with their work and how effective it had been. But as I began to dig into and try to tell the story, these other pieces came to light. So fundamentally, this is where it comes together with the previous book, there is a new American majority. Everybody says, oh, well, Texas is so conservative, et cetera. Texas is only 39% white in terms of its population. Even in terms of the eligible voters, people who are all citizens, African-Americans and Latinos are the majority of people within Texas. And so it's not a question of changing people's minds, et cetera. It's manifesting the power of the new American majority. And so in many ways, Georgia is the clearest case study. So I've known Stacey Abrams for a decade. She said to me 10 years ago, says there's, we're losing by 200,000 votes in Georgia. There's a million and a half eligible non-voting people of color. I'm going to go register them. And steadily, over the course of a decade, she built civic organizations, ran for governor, came close, built the foundation that then brought so many people of color into the electorate that it was able to defeat Trump in Georgia and then flipped the whole U.S. Senate in 2021, electing Raphael Warnock, the literal successor, he's the pastor at Ebenezer Baptist Church, which was Dr. King's church, to the U.S. Senate. And that was all on the foundation and the work that Stacey had actually built. I mean, I talked to her in 2021 when the Congress passed this $2 trillion COVID relief uh, package. And so, so you took that first money we helped you raise 10 years ago and you turned it into two trillion dollars for the american people <laughs> i like to provide return on investment <laughs> but that's the that's the example and that's the hope but it's also the danger of not following that strong leaders strong civic engagement organization data-driven plan to do the voter mobilization work and then having that all lead to electoral success and so obviously stacy reached a level of prominence but what's less appreciate what happened in Arizona. And I have a piece that just went up in the nation yesterday about the lessons from Arizona. We won the Senate seat in the Secretary of Race, Democrats did in 2018. Biden won in 2020. And then the Democrats just won the, the gubernatorial race. 
But all that's tied to the people I, out, I describe in the book who were young student activists. That's where you come into the book, because I was talking about people making their friends in different ways. And you and Susan became friends at CalShakes. Monse Arredondo and uh, Alex Gomez of Lucha became friends fighting against this bill that would deport their families. And they went from there to create civic engagement organizations, Lucha and the One Arizona Coalition that's registered hundreds of thousands of Latinos. And that's how they've won in Arizona. So that's the example of what I'm trying to lift up and tell that story. And that was really the most driving motivation to me, is to be able to honor that work and to share it with the, what's going on in the country. And also, I think it's critical because of what we're up against, that we're not going to win if we don't learn these lessons. Yeah. And of course, partly because of those wins, they are coming hard for voting rights, making it harder to vote, fewer ballot boxes. and Oh, right. Yeah. So the right and the Republicans understand the new American majority far better than Democrats and progressives do. And the extent to which they are trying to stop people from voting is a clear recognition that they can count quite clearly what the danger is. And you would think and hope that it would be matched with a commensurate effort to expand democracy, to be able to get more people to vote. But yes, it's not accidental that there was dozens of voter suppression laws passed in all of these southern and southwestern states in 2021 after Trump lost. This is very much that, well, what did those folks do that enabled them to win? And we're going to stop that from being able to happen, whether it's drop boxes or 24-hour voting, et cetera. Yeah, which is really mind-blowingly anti-small-D democratic. Yeah, well, it's I almost mean, like we're still in a civil war. That's right. They shouldn't be able to surprise us now. And yet sometimes, like somebody was quoted recently saying, you know, so many young people were voting. That's a problem, right? I don't know <laughs> right. who that was. I read yes. it somewhere. Some Republican, I'm like, you you actually said that. You said yes. that out loud. Quiet pirate loud. <laughs> so the final section of the book is an epilogue, a sort of once we win. And I wanted to ask you to read a passage from there that I thought was really beautiful in which you begin to envision the afterworld, what we might do once we're not having to fight tooth and nail just to have everyone's voice included. Yeah, the funny part in terms of the writing piece is I originally planned to call the book Once We Win the Civil War. And my focus was going to be about this vision and what's possible and what we could actually do. But it took so much to do the first two parts <laughs> that I'm like, I can't even get to that third part. So I'll just do it in an epilogue, and that'll be for the, the future and whatnot. But it is about the current social contract that we have is a series of compromises with white supremacists. Even in the Declaration of Independence, I mean, Thomas Jefferson's first draft, he wrote in a condemnation of the slave trade, but the slaveholding states made him take it out. Why do we have to renew a Voting Rights Act every 25 years if we really want people to vote? as a compromise with the white supremacists. So, so much of our social contract is not a collection of our highest and best ideals. So that was the concept I was really going for. Once we win a new social contract, what's actually possible? And that's what this section, the book says. It says, once we win the Civil War, we can let our imaginations run wild and hearts soar. We can craft a social contract for the society we want to live in, a society that we will be happy to leave to our children and grandchildren. We can draw up a societal agreement based on our values, hopes, and dreams instead of whatever else we can get past over the opposition of people who want to destroy us. The possibilities are endless. 
And then you went into these sort of utopian things like educating children and people having health care and food, and which shouldn't be utopian, but kind of exactly. are in our world. I, I found that section really moving. Um, mm. I take it from the fact that you were going to call this book once we win the Civil War, that you are an optimist and you do believe that we will win. Is this correct? <laughs> well, those are, that's a compound question. Um, I am an optimist, and I think I'm more, even more of an optimist having written the book and having put in all the examples of what we used to be up against. Mm. They literally used to take people out and hang them from trees, mm. that we used to have whites-only primaries within this country mm. in the early 20th century, and that Supreme Court upheld the, that the parties are not state entities, so therefore they can discriminate and who gets to run in their primaries. And so the level of, after Brown versus Board of Education was passed, this whole Southern resistance to where they shut down entire school districts for years rather than educate. So when you look at things through that lens, we're far away from that. We've made a lot of progress. And so that gives me a sense of hope and optimism. And then the case studies in the book. I mean, I have seen, I know these people who have been doing this work. I've been tracking it over the course of the past decade, and we have seen it bear out. We saw it bear out in Georgia. We've seen it bearing out in Arizona. So that gives me validation and hope that we have a new American majority. If we do this work, if we apply the liberation battle plan, that we will, in fact, win. Now, my confidence is because I don't think enough people know it yet or don't believe it. And there's still too much naivete and frankly, laziness on the progressive side around doing the data-driven work that needs to be done and the data analysis, and then stealing ourselves for the fight, that's what we're actually up against. And so we have to have some level of struggle within the progressive side of the House around how do we allocate resources. So like an example, in 2020, a Senate Majority Pact that spends like $150 million, as of August 1st, 2020, they had spent $7 million in Iowa, 90% white state, and zero in Georgia. Now, Georgia is the state that actually flipped the Senate. It's supposed to be its mission. So that battle has to take place. And so I'm concerned, which is why I wrote the book and why I'm trying to get it out there, that the people who control the largest sets of resources still don't quite get it. And the ferocity of what we're up against is very intense. And so we are very much, I believe, at an inflection point in this country over these next few years around which direction we are going to go. It's no accident that Trump and his white nationalist policies followed the first black president. And so where we're going to go is very much, I think, on a nice edge. But fundamentally, I am hopeful and optimistic that the trends are in our favor if we do what we have to do. Mm, yeah. That's resonant. I'm thinking of something Michael Sullivan wrote, you know, from the Mime Troop. He posted this to Facebook. He said, the exciting thing about being alive right now is that we're seeing the last gasps of the white capitalist patriarchy. Mm. The terrifying thing about being alive right now is that they're trying to take us all with them. Mm. <laughs> and I think that, yeah. I mean, I hope he's right, that it is yeah. the last gasps. And I think that's why they're fighting so desperately. But as you said, they know how to count. And so when I read the numbers in your book, I feel you like, yeah, the Democrats need to learn how to count right. too and put that energy towards counting. 
you talk so much about deep data dives. And I'm yeah. like, yeah. And this is a tribute to your storytelling because I'm like, yeah, we need the deep data dives. Exactly. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so that's where we're at. But again, you know, even looking at like Arizona, I'm saying is a case study. They've been doing this work. These people came of age in the context of the movement and they've been at it for a decade. And they have actually made meaningful progress in flipping what was formerly seen as a very, very red and conservative state. So that model is a model for the entire South and Southwest. And we flip the South and Southwest, that changes politics in the whole country. So, Do you think that once we win the Civil War, are you seeing the journey to that next book? <laughs> oh, no. I was down in, well, give me a chance to catch my breath. I was in L.A. with my friends, Michael Tubbs and Anna Tubbs, um, who were the mayor and first partner of, of Stockton, and then they're both authors themselves. So Anna wrote this book, The Three Mothers, which was a New York Times bestseller. It's about the mothers of Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, and James Baldwin. And so they're friends and colleagues, but young people. So I kind of trying to help, you know, mentor them. So we were talking to Anna. And so she has a book deal for two more books with her publisher. And I was telling Caitlin, who was with me, I was like, there aren't two more books coming out of me anytime soon, right? So let's lean into this. And I do feel like the lessons of this and its relevance are minimally going to take us through 2024 in terms of the fight that we're facing in this country. And so that's very much where my focus is. Instead of getting up at 630, we'll try to sleep in a little bit, at least for a few weeks here. <laughs> Excellent. Well, Steve, thank you so much for talking with me today. Thanks for having me on. This was super fun. All the time we've known each other. We've never done anything like this. Really glad to be with you. And thank you for listening to Off Leash Arts Conversations on Creativity. I'm your host, Tanya Schaefer. To listen to past episodes, go to offleasharts.com. Theme music and editorial assistance for today's episode were provided by Asher Witkin. Join us next month for more conversation with creative people working in a wide range of media. Until next time, take good care and stay off leash. Thank you.